Hello, friends, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. My name is Caleb Mason, and I am so honored that you have decided to spend part of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today, I am honored to be joined by David Livermore, who is the author of the recent brand new book called Digital, Diverse, and Divided, How to Talk to Racists, Compete with Robots, and Overcome Polarization. And we're going to have a great conversation today. However, if this happens to be your first time listening to The Learner's Corner, I do want to tell you about a couple of things which inform pretty much everything that we do here in The Learner's Corner. The first thing is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. And as you might be able to guess from just the title of the conversation or of the book that David wrote, we're going to get into that. We're going to talk a lot about how do you create, how do you be a safe person? How do you be a person who can engage in difficult, complex, and nuanced conversations. We believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, which really this conversation that we're going to talk about just is at the intersection of everything that makes the learner's corner the learner's corner. It is why we do what we do. Because no matter what someone believes, how, what their lifestyle is, we truly believe that we can learn from everyone, even if we disagree with them, that we believe that we can learn from anything and from everything, whether that's something serious or something trivial. And the reason why we do it is because we want to be the person who was there for us, or maybe we want to be the mentor that we wish that we had, regardless of whatever it is, we want to help the people coming after us succeed. We want to help them go further and go faster than we were or than what we were able to. And so we're going to get into a lot of that today. Now, if you enjoy this conversation or if you want to continue to keep up with what is happening at the Learner's Corner, the best thing to do is subscribe to the newsletter. And on that, I give you all of the things that I'm thinking about, some of the things that I'm learning from as well. And I send it to you each and every single week. And it'll just go right into your email box. I give you some of the music that I'm listening to, maybe some of the quotes that I've come across that are making me think, some of my uh, book recommendations, podcast recommendations, YouTube videos. I just give you the whole gamut of stuff that I am just enjoying and some of the things that I am learning from as well. And again, the best, uh, you can just check that out by going into the show notes and you can subscribe to the newsletter right then in there. So let me tell you a little bit about David, and then we are going to dive right into the conversation. David Livermore is a social scientist devoted to the study of cultural intelligence and global leadership, and the author of several award-winning books. He is the founder of the Cultural Intelligence Center in East Lansing, Michigan, and a visiting research fellow at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. Prior to leading the Cultural Intelligence Center, he spent 20 years in leadership positions with a variety of nonprofits and taught in five universities. He is a frequent speaker and advisor to leaders in Fortune 500 companies, nonprofits, and governments, and he has worked in more than 100 countries as well. He also has a PhD as well. And we're going to get into uh, so many different things that we're going to talk about here on the podcast. I actually came across him 
several years ago at the Global Leadership Summit and really enjoyed listening to him. And so I was really grateful that we were able to have this conversation. And we're going to talk so much about the book and just a ton of stuff outside of the book as well. And so without any further wait, here is my conversation with David Livermore. David, it is so good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thanks, Caleb. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. And anytime that I get the chance to talk with somebody about um, a book that they've uh, authored or a work of art that they've created, which I would very much put like anytime that you're writing a book, it is a work of art. I love hearing the story behind it. And so I would just love to hear from you of what, what led you to write this book, Digital, Diverse, and Divided. Yeah, so um, I've, I've written some previous books on the topic of cultural intelligence, which is really the area that I've devoted my professional research and work toward over the last 25 years. And uh, as you know, because you've read the book, cultural intelligence is the skill set to work effectively with people from different backgrounds. And almost always um, that's been applied in terms of people coming from different cultures. So for the most part, for several years, it was you know, I from the US, how do I interact with a counterpart in China or Germany? The last 10 years or so, we started to apply it much more deeply into the US diversity conversation. Um, but to, to come back to your question, why did I write this book? People often said to me, so what are you gonna write the book about cultural intelligence for everyone? And I'm like, I, I'm not sure there is such a thing. And maybe maybe I'm, I'm my own worst marketer, but all too often I had interacted with friends outside the workspace about what I do and you kind of just get this glossed over look. Oh, that's nice. So what are you doing this weekend? You know? And so I'm like, I don't know how you write a book about cultural intelligence for everyone. And then uh, over the last five to six years as I've watched the political discourse in the U.S. and elsewhere, as well as uh, across faith communities and educational institutions, I'm like, man, this, this thing that I've been teaching executives to do in terms of how they work internationally actually may have some relevance to how we bridge the blue-red divide or, you know, the divides across any number of kind of political polarizing issues. So that was a long answer to your first question. I probably, I promise I won't be that verbose on all of them, but it was uh, really out of a desire to say, can this work that we've done in intercultural work actually have some relevance closer to home with people who may look very much like us on the outside, but may see the world vastly different on the inside? Yeah, no, it, and you're great. I... I, I can never get enough context because I think that just helps lead to us having better conversations. Mm. And so that's why I asked the question because I love hearing that. And and I do want to go back. Um, and where, where did this, you know, this desire, this curiosity for learning about culture intelligence start for you? Do you remember like the first time that you like were introduced to it? So, uh, you and I had a very brief conversation before we started yeah. recording. So I, I know I can go there with you. Yeah. There's, there's the safe answer I've used for 15 years in the broad world that has said, well, I was working internationally 
And I kept bumping up against challenges, so I had to figure out a solution to it. That's that's the safe answer. It is true, but it's not the whole story. Yeah. Um, it actually did start much sooner and at the very surface level. So I'm, I'm a Canadian American, so I'm a dual citizen. So there were some very surface level things, even for me as a kid, we crossed the border like, oh, you know, they use funny money or they talk funny, et cetera. But really what what's at the crux of it, and hence my reference to your, my brief conversation before we started was, I was an aspiring missionary and mm. 10 years old, I am like, I am going to Brazil. I had the next 25 years mapped out. And, you know, I grew up in a very devout, fundamentalist, evangelical home. And uh, I will say, while my parents were enthused about my ambitions, they did say, hey, at 10, you may want to just kind of hold a little bit loose. They're like, God has called me. And anyway, all that to say, um, well, actually, some of the work that I started to do in the, in the name of missions actually really began to challenge some of my assumptions of my faith and my citizenship. Still, I, I would say it was the aspiration to um, engage the world in my faith system that really was the early birthing of what I know today as cultural intelligence. Yeah. And what what made you or what were some of the things that led you to go, okay, I don't think I want to be a missionary. However, I am still interested in learning how to communicate and the cultural intelligence and all of that. Yeah, that one probably was a much more gradual evolution. But I will say, so I, we traveled back and forth between U.S. and Canada all the time. But outside of that, I never left the country until I was 19. And it was on a missions study abroad trip um, out of Calvin College. And I'm landing in Peru. And I had been told that as a 19-year-old with one year of college education, I had more education than the vast majority of very seasoned leaders in Peru, whether they were leading churches or governments or businesses. So I kind of went in with this swagger. And then I sit down and I start to talk to these 40 year old village elders along the Amazon or a government official. I'm like, oh, crap, I don't I don't know a thing. So that was it. That wasn't the eroding of my call to missions, but it was the birthing of my whoa, whoa, whoa wait a second here. Like maybe maybe i don't have all the answers here and i mean they most of the people i was interacting with held the same worldview as me but still had some different interpretations of scripture and then the more i traveled the more that that started to have a broader and broader embrace and so your question's interesting because my my mom just passed away a couple years ago but when i left vocational ministry um to get engaged in this broader work she said I, I don't know what to tell my friends anymore when they ask me if you're still in the ministry. And I'm like, mom, I feel like I'm more engaged yeah. in redemptive virtuous work today than when I was a full-time seminary professor, when I was mm -hmm. full-time engaged in, in ministry. So yeah, that, that's all over the place in my response. And, yeah. uh, it, it is very different than what I myself thought of as being a missionary. And many people in missions work go, give me a break. You ain't no missionary, bro. Um, but I would argue that some of the core part of what fuels me to do this is still um, was birthed from my faith um, and still consider myself a person of faith. Yeah. Can you talk about that, that motivation that you were talking about, or even that, that desire and the um, seeing that, Hey, I am, I am still doing a form of ministry, even though it doesn't look like quote unquote ministry. Right. I mean, for me, and this is where many people from the Christian faith would 
be in vehement disagreement with me, but I don't feel comfortable proselytizing and telling people they need to follow my way of viewing the world. So that, mm -hmm. that's where there's a distinct difference. But yeah. really the, um, the compassion for people, the belief that there's something more transcendent and supernatural than just what meets the eye. Um, I mean, it, for me, a, apart from that, why do do this work? Like if it's just about, I want to help businesses make more money by becoming more cultural and well, that isn't overly motivating to me, or I want to help a nation protect its personal interests. So I would say it's, it's still a core part of what drives me to do it, but I, I have great respect and more than respect, learn a whole lot from people from entirely different faiths or no faith at all, who still teach me a whole lot about what it looks like to engage in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would love to hear what's one of the things could be could be recent could have been, you know, just I guess any time in your life that uh, what's one of the things that you've taken away from someone who was either a different culture than you different faith background than you that you would say, wow, this is fundamentally like shifted how I think about things. Yeah. Two things immediately came to mind when you asked me that one um, was when I was working on my PhD at Michigan State. Sorry, Ohio man. Uh, <laughs> hey, at least you're not Michigan. Michigan State. Right, I did right. Yeah. For those outside the Midwest, yeah. like, what, what are you guys talking about now? But at any rate, this is where we really need cultural intelligence. Yeah, yeah right? exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when I was working on my PhD, I mean, in sociology program, and so kind of think of the quintessential extreme liberal sociology professor, um, African-American who was teaching me things about white privilege and racism I haven't even thought of. But I mean, she would just go off on the um, abuses of women in places all over the world and clitorectomies and just awful things that were done. And uh, I was just kind of like, well, why does she even care about this if it doesn't come from a place of faith? And yet she was voicing injustices that at least the world that I was in at that time, nobody in my evangelical circle was talking about that. That certainly has changed today. There's many, that's what drives me nuts when someone says the evangelical, well, which, which one are you yeah. talking about? It's, it's become a much broader tent and not to make assumptions about you, Caleb, but yeah. uh, your generation, at least based upon appearance, I think holds a much higher value around social justice and that. But at that point in time, about 2000, it was like, well, these are things, big corporate um, colonization of the world is, is something I haven't thought about. So that was one, maybe one that's a bit more explicit about some of the polarizing tension that people yeah. feel is uh, a few years ago, I was sitting around with a group of captains from Saudi Airlines um, that you know, we're all Muslims and smoking our shisha pipe together. And, um, you know, they said to me, so how about you? Are you a Christian? And I'm like, oh, oh crap, oh crap. You know, and it, with all of my own stereotypes, like, is this how terrorist attacks begin? I mean, I didn't quite yeah. think that, but it was yeah. like, is it okay for me to just say it? And I said, I wasn't like, we love that. We love to meet other people of faith. And mm -hmm. when you asked me, like, what was something that kind of enriched my own thinking? I mean, they have a much more being orientation in uh, being fully present with one another in community than at least what I've experienced in U.S. Christianity. And yes, there's all kinds of things I find troubling about some of the at least cultural expressions of how they go about their faith, but just their ability to be fully present with one another and with their families. That was something that really 
sharpened me in a way that I wasn't necessarily getting in the same sense. I've heard lots of talks or sermons throughout the years about that, but to actually be in the presence of people who just feel like they're very much at ease at being present in the moment. Um, yeah, those are a couple examples. Yeah. And it's just like, it, it, it frustrates me at times. Or it's just very ironic at times too, because uh, I, I would imagine for the both of us, we would say, people who who follow Jesus or Christians should be the people who that is most true of that we should be most respectful to the people who who have different beliefs than us and it is just not the case <laughs> in that right. at, at least at least here in America it is not that is not the case yeah or yeah and I mean as you know because you've so kindly taken time to look at the book I mean it's it's one of the things that I get into on some of these sensitive issues like gender fluidity like i'm not really interested in trying to convince people to change what they believe but why is it such a big deal to you to to refer to someone by their preferred pronoun you know Mm -hmm. etc and and i i I get because i'm a person i get that it's uh, because like that that's a dangerous road but but we're not asking you to agree with their lifestyle or whatever. Yeah. The first step is just, can you exercise compassion? So, um, yeah. Can you talk about that? I don't know if the right word is desire for us to want to kind of change what other people believe and that. And like, yeah. that's, that's not just a faith thing. Like you can look to the left, you can look to the right. Absolutely. Like, any of the, the extremes. It's like, okay, I want you to believe what I want, what I believe. Can you talk about what's behind that? Yeah, I mean, I suppose if I can look at the redemptive thread in it, and to your point, it doesn't matter if you're talking about a passionate vegetarian or climate change person or Muslim or Christian, you know, yeah. it's, it's that the redemptive theme, I guess, is if I genuinely believe this is so good for me, I want it to be good for you. But I think where it crosses a line is an inability to see that there can be multiple good ways to go about doing things it's it's I was, I was talking to a guy yesterday who was saying you know the the rancor that happens between texas and california and having just moved to california i would say i heard a same similar thing from the midwest like oh you're moving to california i can't imagine a worse place to be going politically and you know now that i've come here oh you're from the midwest like do those people have like three arms growing out of their heads or something and so like what what would be so bad about saying Yeah, there's some foibles to California. They haven't fully figured it out, but it's a robust, vibrant place that's been going on for hundreds of years. And I'm going to really extend an olive branch here and go. And the state of Ohio is a place that, you know, is not perfect, um, but has somehow made things operate or, you know, to make a a more direct illustration of what I say in the Texas. So some of it, I suppose, emerges from especially in the u.s our strong patriotism like there's a a pride and a confidence in what we're about and you don't want to be like yeah i'm i'm sorry i'm an american or i'm sorry i'm a christian or i'm sorry i'm a white male but we we don't seem to know how to be confident but also be humble and go wow but because i'm any one of those things maybe there's some things i've overlooked that you can see Mm. talk to me about that tension between confidence and humility because mm-hmm. like you, you do, like, we do want to hold true to, you know, this is what I believe. This is what I value all at the same time of making room for the other person. What's helped you manage that? 
Yeah, it's a great question. In our work on cultural intelligence, it's actually something we measure in the component of CQ drive, like what drives and motivates you. And there's a sub-dimension to get really technical in yeah. our assessment that measures self-efficacy, which is a, a term from uh, Bandura on, do you feel confident that you can be effective in what you're doing? So sometimes I'm, I'm kind of backing into an answer to your yeah. question here. Um, sometimes I think we've thought that the answer to not being that overconfident, arrogant American or Christian or white male is to go on an apology tour for everything we're doing. And I had a period of that for myself. I mean, I was having my faith ripped away as well as my nationality, in part through my graduate studies and just being hammered on. I'm like, I, I feel like I shouldn't say anything. I shouldn't go anywhere. And then it was like, but that's not helpful. And that and it's actually yeah. kind of awkward for other people. Like, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know, I, I know I'm the white guy here and I shouldn't even be opening my mouth. So yeah, I guess I love your, your practical personal questions. What, what's provoked me mm -hmm. to do it? I, I think it is a lot of reflection on, okay, what did I have to offer that was of value? And where was I maybe not as strong and I really needed someone else's complimentary strength to, to offer that? Maybe to get just a bit more precise, let me, let me come yeah. at it this way, yeah. Caleb. So I'm, I'm thinking about a time when I was in the throes of some of this like colonialism studies and just how much you know the church and missions work has been complicit on it. At that point, I was yeah. still working full time on behalf of a, an evangelical ministry. And so I was in South Africa and with a South African friend who had actually really spouted a lot of this stuff to me, you Americans. This. So my, my first day with his leaders that he had brought me in, I'm just over disclaiming, like I'm not saying I have all the answers here and I'm not. He pulls me aside at the break. He's like, knock it off. like. Own that at the beginning. We appreciate that you say, I'm not here as Mr. American white guy that's know-it-all, but now I didn't bring them here for two days to listen to you apologize for two days. And it was, I mean, he could say that to me because we, we had an established relationship, but it really kind of caught me off guard. Like I've overcorrected here. Um, yeah, sorry, you're asking all the right questions. Oh, no, I could just this is going on into seven nope. more directions. This, this is great. And you could just could you could just keep talking as far as I'm concerned. I'm very, I'm very interested. And I want to follow up on that. Just just what you were talking about in there. And you write about in the book of, um, you know, you say, hey, I'm not somebody who who is discrim discriminated against a lot. And so you did have to work through that tendency of like, OK, I, I may have something to contribute here can you talk right. to me about what helped you like get to that place because i think that's a hurdle that like we all have to work through especially in, in certain conversations to where some people are saying like no david you can't like no you can't talk like it is not right. your turn to talk can you talk to right. me about that yeah um i i do think the time has come for people who look like me to realize i i shouldn't necessarily be the first person yep. to open my mouth and I need to use my voice to ensure other voices get heard or if yeah. I suddenly get credit for something that my African-American colleague just said or my junior millennial colleague said say, oh, actually, I think it was Caleb who made that point. I was just reiterating it. Um, but yeah, as, as it relates to even writing this book, I and I expect I am going to get some pushback. I mean, the book just came out two days ago, so it's it's too early yet to have had much of that. But I'm sure there'll be people are like, really? A white straight guy, middle-aged, is writing a book about diversity, and uh, 
It was actually many of my friends from marginalized group, people of color, people who are uh, non-cisgender, et cetera, who were like, but, but we, you can't put all the responsibility on us. We can't always be the voice. And I mean, you and I have, have heard in conversations after George Floyd happens mm -hmm. or in the moment of Black Lives Matter really gaining national visibility, regardless of what people think about it, of, of African-Americans being tasked with, tell us what's going on here, help us understand it. And you just hear it about their fatigue of, yeah. I am not going to be the one who is going to educate you about the civil rights movement. We need some other people to do that. So I guess it's, I walk with a bit of this limp of going, I can't pretend I have the lived experience of my colleagues who have kids the age of mine that warn them that I have 23 and 25 year old who warn their, especially if they have sons, young males, black driving, you know, mm -hmm. here's what you got to do. I, I can't pretend to have that lived experience of what it feels like to watch them drive off and hope they're going to be okay. But having devoted 25 years of researching this topic, I don't think it's fair for me either to say, oh, I'm not going to say anything because I don't want someone to accuse me that, yeah. you know, here's the white guy who's mansplaining or whitesplaining or, or whatever else. Um, so it's, it's complicated. What I was going to say before to you yeah. when I was using my South African example, and I think it links to where you just went now, is one of my big concerns is, it's so hard to say this when it's two, what I believe yeah. are two white guys talking together, is one of my concerns is that a lot of the thrust of the diversity conversation is causing people who look like you and me to just walk away from it and just go, I don't want to say something that's offensive and maybe yeah. even our, our allies and supportive. And I mean, to our fellow white guys, I'd say, you know, buckle up here, you know, yeah. like you can handle yeah. it. Like, Oh no, they called you a racist. It's okay. But my concern is, you know, we do have the option of walking away from the conversation. So if shame is the number one way we try to get people engaged, I'm just worried from a pragmatic statement that it's not going to be very productive. Mm. Yeah. Are there any other concerns that you have pertaining to just what we've been talking about or even just the book or anything? Oh, gosh, many. <laughs> uh, yeah. So a couple others. So one. Um, so I always whenever I write a book, I when I have a fairly rough draft of it, circulate it to a pretty diverse group of readers. And I mean, diverse in numerous senses of that term. But when I did that with this one about a year ago, what surprised me and these are all, you know, at least professional colleagues, associates, if not friends, is consistently the people of color who read it. The very subtitle of my book, How to Talk to Racists, mm -hmm. Compete with Robots, Overcome Polarization, put them on the defensive of, as a person of color, wait, so I have to talk to racists? Like, now you're, you're obligating me to do that? I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, this is an opt-in experience. I never presumed on you that you have to. So, you know, by the, the final version that actually came out, I probably annoyingly so overemphasized this is opt-in, especially if you're from a marginalized group. It's I'm not saying it's on you to do this, but for those who are saying I need some handles on how do I even navigate this? How do I actually walk into it? I think one of my other concerns, I said this to my wife after, you know, it released the other day and I was seeing friends of mine from all across the political and spiritual spectrum say, oh, I'm, I'm going to order it. I'm like, oh, crap, I think I'm going to be pissing off the far right and the far left. Like, I'm not going to be woke enough and I'm not going to yeah. be diehard evangelical enough. And 
I don't know if it's not a concern that keeps me up at night, but I am like, it's going to be interesting whether or not there's a middle ground that people find like, okay, I didn't agree with you on that, but I still found some helpful tools here. But I think that's even just a healthy expectation to have of like, like, I, I mean, that's where, that's where changes happen. You know, change happens in the middle, like in the mod, in the moderate where we're able to see each other. And of course you're going to piss off the people who are very hardcore left or the very hardcore right in that. And I think it's it's the point that you made before of, you know, we, we've seen it a lot in the Christian realm, but both sides are equally complicit in oh, saying yeah. you're wrong if you don't believe what I do. And it's gone beyond you're wrong. Like you're ignorant, you're immoral, you're dishonest, you're deplorable, you know, yeah. and on and on the, the list goes. Well, that even goes back to like what you talk about in the book of like the dehumanization of it as well, because like, I'd probably take it even further. It's like, not only are you wrong, you're evil and you're complicit in contributing to this evil. Yeah. I mean, you may recall that I make reference in the book to, uh, you know, something I overheard early on in the vaccine debate of of somebody pro vaccines is like, good, don't get it. Let them die. They're stupid anyway. It's like, what have we become? There's a valid debate to be had about vaccines, you know, and and I'm vaccinated and I was pro the the, the viability of that, but there's still a healthy debate to be had about, is that an individual right or a collective right? And to now suddenly immediately resort to just let those people die. Um, And of course, equally troubling things that were said from the anti-vaxxers about you know, the, the ignorant, stupid, evil people. So you're right. It's It's gone way beyond your dumb to you are malicious and evil and you're wishing ill on us. Yeah. And again, I, I just can't help but think, like anytime that this types of conversation comes up, again, it just reminds me of of the Christian faith of like how important it is for, for loving our enemies as well. And like, that's not just true for the people that we, like we don't just love the people who we, who think like us or agree with us. I guess it's important for the people who are very on the very opposite end of it too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the core teaching of Jesus. And I, I think where probably I would differ with some, with my former evangelical self, I won't say whether other evangelicals today is, I think I would have always said that, but it's, it was a means to get them to believe what I believe. Yeah. So love your enemies so that they will then eventually come your way. Yeah. And it's for me, I'm arguing for, can I be open to say, and maybe my enemy actually has some insights that I'm missing out on. And I don't know why people are so scared of being, oh, if I really believe in the absolute yeah. transcendence of my faith, anyway, I'm going on and on about this, but. No, I, I agree. And it even just reminds me more of like, like that isn't the, uncon- like me loving you so that you do what I hope that you do. That is not like, that's not, I would argue that that is not love. Like that's definitely right? not I mean, unconditional. I mean, when's the last time a salesperson called up? I'm like, what, how's your day going today? Like get to the point. Right? Yeah. Uh, um, I, I, I do want to touch on Uh, the dehumanization piece of it. And I would love to hear from you because like we can hear that. And I'm sure that we all have like ideas of like, oh yeah, that, that is dehumanizing somebody. I would love to hear what are some of the ways or the subtle ways that you have come across that it's like, okay, it's, it's not explicit. It doesn't seem like it, but you are being dehumanized into this person in these subtle ways. 
Sorry, there are, are sirens <laughs> going by me, so I was trying to. Uh, yeah, you're good. Block I can, that out. I can. Um, I can edit that out too. It's not a problem. Um. Yeah, I love the question because we can look at the extreme versions. I mean, the the whole nature of race as a construct was a an approach at dehumanizing. Like if we see black people, yellow skinned people, as they were called, as less than, then we can justify slavery or that. Um, I actually think where it comes up in maybe more subtle ways are the kinds of examples you and I were just talking about, where maybe the example I gave of the vaccines was over the top rhetoric. Mm -hmm. But it's, you don't go too far from that to when you're saying, the sheeple who are doing blah, blah, blah. Like, okay, that I arrived at this mindlessly. Um, I was interacting with a lot of companies who were wrestling with vaccine mandates. You know, it mm -hmm. feels like that's kind of uh, died down in yeah. part because of whether we've reached natural immunity or whatever, but should they do it or not? And we, we tried to engage a lot in perspective taking and to what degree do you view, usually I was talking to people who thought they should mandate vaccines, but how do I get the people on board who are going to resist it? And I tried to get them to like, can you see this through their point of view in a way that they're not ignorant imbeciles? Um, and it was really hard for them to do it. Like, no, the problem is I, I think they are ignorant. They're ill-informed. Like, really? Like, sure, there might be some, but you don't think they have any plausible reason to actually arrive at this. So I, I think it's more in that we start to challenge the the um, wisdom, the knowledge, the intellect of someone just because of what they believe. And, you know, frankly, it's funny because I'm originally from the East Coast and just moved to the West Coast, never thought I'd be Mr. Defend the Midwest, but suddenly I'm feeling defensive when I hear pejorative terms about people living in flyover country. Like, hey, we're a diverse mix of people that live mm -hmm. in the Midwest as well. So I think it's those kinds of subtleties that almost frighten me more than the toxic rhetoric that's just over the top where you're like, okay, you know, here we go again. That's just kind of their style. Um, yeah. Talk to me about that. What has you more concerned about like the subtleness of that than, than the avertness of it? I mean, it's the age old frog in the kettle um, analogy, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. if you're just dropped into boiling water, you're like, whoa, th this isn't right. But the gradual and I've seen it in terms of communities too, where racism is explicit versus where it isn't. So for a period of time, I lived in Muskegon, Michigan, which is right on the, the coastline of, of Lake Michigan. And uh, there, I mean, it was literally the different sides of the tracks, you know? And so there was a clear dividing line of where uh, African-Americans lived and everybody else. And people weren't subtle about it. And of course that was troubling to me. I wasn't like bring it on, but at least there yeah. was no, surface of then i move you know it, not even an hour east toward grand rapids and there's a much nicer way that we all interact here but then beneath the surface you're like oh my gosh this place is incredibly racist in terms of all the events i go to are not reflecting much diversity at all if we're talking about that it's a leadership gathering so of course, the the in your face, the white supremacist, all that is is appalling. But I think the average people that you and I interact with are like, yes, I don't yeah. want any part of that, but are much more okay with somewhere in the middle where it just kind of, well, you misunderstood that, or they can try and explain it away. It's like, no, we need to call it what it is and not dance around it. Mm. 
you have this quote at the very beginning. It's from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that I want to read, and I want to ask you something about it. Yeah. Uh, you quote him, and you say, or actually, he says, you know, people fail to get along because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other because they have not communicated with each other. And that's like this idea of just communicating. It's one of the things I've been thinking about a lot. And like, is it is it wrong to think that like our our the solution is just that we need to learn how to communicate with each other better? Um, so I would say it's incomplete. It's not wrong. Okay. But I would say we will never get there if we don't first communicate with each other. And mm. so I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth because yeah. I'm, I'm going to end up saying that it's it's right in a way. Yeah. But the, the, re the only reason I say it's incomplete is I think rightfully so. Many people of color right now, two and a half years plus George Floyd's murder are like, and screw the conversation. We've been having the conversation. Where's the real action in terms of what's yeah. going to happen? And, you know, this is fun because I get to talk more freely about the faith context. Yeah. With you, because yeah. a lot of the conversation I've had, it's like people are a little intrigued by it. Like, what? You were going to be a missionary? Okay, let's get to the real part. But so if you'll amuse me for a yeah. moment. Yep. Um, yep. You know, I, I've followed this conversation a lot, and I think I, I briefly referenced it in the book in terms of interfaith dialogue. I mean, for years, interfaith has all been about the dialogue. Let's bring together the Buddhist and the Muslim and the Christian. And who's there? The, the far liberals in all those groups enjoying their potlucks and writing resolutions. And what the hell happens as a result of it? You know, yeah. Not, so that's the only reason I said insufficient, like if we're just going to talk. But it's absolutely the first step and to link it back to your previous um, questions regarding dehumanization it's a lot harder to dehumanize if i'm now sitting face to face or even zoom to zoom and talking mm -hmm. with you as compared to just tweeting out one more meme that talks about all those people so is that does that resonate yeah. yep um, definitely it one of the one of the things that my counselor had told me uh, fairly fairly recently is he said you know all of dysfunction is born of usually three things he said you don't communicate you don't feel and you don't feel like you can trust and he's like all dysfunction mm. can be kind of tied back to that wow and so that's like as i read that i was thinking like oh communication if we don't talk about it then it just creates problems yeah Boy. i mean i was literally in a conversation earlier this morning about a, a couple individuals within an organization I work with where it's the first time they had talked in I bet six months and mm -hmm. what you just said it's like there were so many assumptions that have been arrived at of what the other party had been thinking that were at least denied by yeah. the individual and so you know I think there's some tangible things they're going to need to do to kind of put back together their relationship but it was impossible to even get there if there wasn't mm -hmm. communication. As you know, kind of the the big thing that I'm really pushing for in the book is start with communication and then yep. orient the communication around a shared problem you're trying to solve. So that that's yep. the yes, but to my it's it's not that it's wrong, but it's by itself talking isn't enough. It's yeah. okay. Let's talk specifically about what are ways we could actually work together around something that we both care about? Otherwise it becomes a, okay, you think what you think, I think what I think. We can still be friends, but I still think you're wrong. You know? yeah. and 
I want to dig into the communication piece of it. What are some of the things that you've seen that have helped people learn how to communicate better? Yeah, that's good. Um, I mean, part of it is there is no substitute for direct experience. And so in our research on cultural intelligence, people have often said, well, obviously the people who are well-traveled or live in very cosmopolitan places are more culturally intelligent. We're saying, no, you could have traveled all over the world and not been culturally intelligent. But if you've done it well, that is you're a reflective traveler, you're a curious traveler, then you absolutely just pick up on different communication styles. I mean, I think of the number of times that I've sat in a conference or a leadership session in Asia and thought, everyone was either bored or didn't understand anything because there was no nonverbal feedback only to find out, oh, the communication style was, you don't make lots of nonverbal yeah. feedback, et cetera, which I'm grateful you're doing, Caleb, because it <laughs> makes it much easier for me as yeah. a communicator. So I think that firsthand observation, um, I actually think, so this is slightly different than interpersonal, but yeah. it's extremely painful. Um, as one who's done a fair amount of public speaking, but I, I will often record myself and just watch things and then even ask people with different communication styles, like what, what things do I do that are distracting to you? What works well for you? And you do that long enough, you start to find you'll get, you know, passionate responses that contradict with each other. And perhaps you get that in response to your podcast, certain yeah. things you do that you're like, that's the best ever. And other people <laughs> like, quit doing that, Caleb. And so, so I, that can be confusing as one who has to figure out how to communicate to a diversity of audiences, but it at least causes you to go, okay, maybe there's ways I can adapt it. So, yeah, those are a couple reflections that I would have on that. Yeah. Talk to me about the times to wherever you are in front of a diverse audience and you know that, okay, if I say this to this person, it will hit them. They will completely understand it. However, if I say that, it will go over this person's head. It will offend this person. Talk to me about how you've learned how to navigate just that tension there. Yeah, I, I'm still learning, but yeah. um, I've learned it most through mistakes. <laughs> so um, because the the worst thing I think we can do as a communicator is just to give a vanilla presentation and go, I, I don't want to offend anyone, so I'm just going to keep it really safe. Um, and the added complexity is I actually think a good communicator, especially if you're going into a live setting with a group who are all from a particular, say, organization or Christian context, I think one of the best things to do as a communicator is also one of the most dangerous, and that is to build affinity by some of the inside jokes or internal. But then to your very point, how do you have some people like, I have no idea what you're talking yeah. about there, you know? So we could probably jump right into that right now with evangelicalisms and immediately yeah. know what we're talking about with, you know, campfires and camp songs yeah. or whatever else it might be, or raising your hand or sword drills or yeah. other things. That would be like, well, what are you talking about? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I would say a couple things that I have learned to do is I, I try and use a diversity of examples when I'm communicating. So if this one doesn't work for this group, am I thinking of one that might work for another? So, you know, I would, I'm not very good at sports analogies, period, but I'd, I'd be very cautious and not just using sports analogies. Yeah. But if I don't use any, there's certain who might not connect with it. Um, 
Many would disagree with me, but I actually do like to use humor because I think humor is disarming. Um, but of course, it's very dangerous. The more diversity you have, the more that people don't get what you meant at all or take it offensively. And that's again where I'd rather be a little bit more bold and confident and run the risk of maybe making some people feel uncomfortable rather than just playing it totally safe, safe and being robotic. So. Mm. Maybe I can share the the one story that um, I talk about with this in the book, and I some others may have heard it at the Global Leadership Summit, actually, where I, I shared it a, a few years ago. But yeah. uh, I talk about having um, been doing a variety of speaking engagements in China, and I had about 10 days in a row where I was giving fairly similar presentations through an interpreter to a Chinese audience. I got to about the third day and felt like I was through the worst of the jet lag and my interpreter and I seemed to be finding a good cadence. And I felt like people were like connecting and resonating with the message. And so I, I start right out with one of my talks on the third day and I share a story that I had shared at least a couple times on the previous days. What I don't know, you already know because you probably read this, but is that the, the translator is not translating the story, but is saying our speaker is doing what a lot of North Americans do. He's telling a story that he thinks is funny. And I just keep confidently telling it, you know, like from my preacher boy days, you know, yeah. like tell a great story to, to hook people. Yep. And uh, what she says to them, you know, in Mandarin, and I can't understand is when he gets to the part that he thinks is funny, you know, my punchline, I'll tell you so you can laugh enthusiastically so he's not embarrassed. And sure enough, I get to the funny part of the story. They all erupt in laughter and I'm like, yes, this is what it looks like to be a culturally intelligent speaker. It was actually a couple more days before a bilingual speaker said to me, are you aware what's going on? And I'm like, what? And initially I was very defensive and felt like, you know, who needs counseling here? Like, why yeah. couldn't she just come talk to me about this? Um, but over time, I started to see, wait, she had been trying to tell me. She kept asking, I'm not sure about that story. I don't know how well people are going to understand. I'm like, no, no, the story works great. And I think what it, to come way back to your initial question, what have I learned about it? Like, the answer wasn't for me to try and be a, a Chinese speaker. And, you know, a traditional Chinese speaker would read the whole thing. Of course, it would be in Mandarin, which I couldn't possibly do. Mm -hmm. But there's no reason why I had to start with a story that the reason that she didn't want to share it is for the organizers. It felt like me sharing a self-effacing story that in our U.S. evangelical circles works really well. Like, yeah. oh, he's humble. He's accessible. Mr. Expert has kind yeah. of loaded himself. But instead... Um, it, it caused people to go, why do we come here an expert who doesn't even know how to do this himself kind of thing? Um, yeah. So yeah, just ongoing process. But you know, I, I had a, a situation a few weeks ago where I was doing a presentation after I'm like, ah, I don't think that illustration worked well for this group. So it's an ongoing kind of learning mm -hmm. discovery for me, for sure. Yeah. Talk to me about what are the, and it, and I know that cultural intelligence, it's something that you continue to work on and, and grow on. I would love to hear from you. What's like one of the more challenging aspects of cultural intelligence for you right now? So I think as a person of faith, as a global citizen, even take faith out of it as a person of morals. So mm -hmm. if the faith trips uh, some of your audience up, um, I'm not neutral on everything that I believe and think about how the world should operate. And so 
I don't think culture gets to be the final word on everything that should happen. And even in this, when I said earlier in our conversation, I'm not trying to change what people believe. Yeah. There are some beliefs and some attitudes that I think are problematic. So I still sometimes have sleepless nights. Like, what does it look like for cultural intelligence to genuinely be open and to consider that maybe you have a point of view that I've totally missed, but to still be a person who has my own convictions and maybe even challenges you that you may need to rethink them. So I, I have more questions about that than answers. I, you know that I share some of those dilemmas in the book of, you know, an individual who is very pro LGBTQ plus, but is in Uganda and is asking what's the right way to respect the Ugandan culture, but to also say, yeah. well, but I'm not neutral on that. So. I think that's one of the most challenging aspects of it for me. Cultural intelligence doesn't live in a vacuum. It has to live alongside of our concern about human rights and human dignity and equity and all those important values. Mm -hmm. And another idea that you have, and I, and I want to read the quote from it and I want to, then I want to ask you about it is um, you say psychologists or psychologists argue that a healthy sense of identity begins with understanding and appreciating oneself for being able to appreciate the world and the reality of others. And it just helped, it just made me think of like, is, is so much of our polarization is so much of our division tied to that. We do not have a healthy identity of ourselves individually. That's, that's really good insight, Caleb. Cause I, I think it comes back to your, like, why do we have such a need to have everybody else agree with us. And I think some of that comes out of our own insecurity because then if we arrive at different things, well, then do you think my way's dumb or stupid? Um, so, yeah. And, you know, it's one of the things that the intercultural world has been talking about for years, um, that self-awareness is the first step. I can't possibly understand another culture on the other side of the world if I don't first understand the culture that I'm from. And then take that even further to where you're going. If I don't understand myself and my own worlds that I've grown up in, how can I possibly think I'm going to understand what you've come from? Mm. Yeah. It's, it's often said, and I think you can make this broader than culture as we classically think of it, that, you know, culture is kind of like water to fish. Like a fish is only aware of the water when it's removed from it. And so when we're, when we're swimming in our own identity, it's quite possible to go all throughout life without much of that self-awareness. So yeah, I, I absolutely think that the first step toward overcoming polarization is to come to grips with where we are in our own identity development. Mm -hmm. Yeah, can you talk to me more about that? Like, I love that analogy of, of the fish and I am very much like, a, like I've heard that so many times to where I'm like, help me see the water. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. help me see the water. Help me see the things that I don't know that that have shaped my identity or the things that I don't even know what I'm dealing with. What has helped you or what have you helped, what have you seen helps others in like identifying like the water, the things that we don't even know that are affecting us, the things that we don't even know that are shaping our identity, what helps us see those things? Yeah. Um, even though I, I keep saying that this book is not just about international, I will say it's there are few things that are as powerful in doing that as getting removed from our own cultural context. So I don't know if you've had a chance to travel at all internationally. Mm -hmm. It looks like you yep. have. Where? Where have you been? Uh, so I've been to Israel. 
before. Oh, okay. Yeah. Great. Yep. So talk about vastly different world than the <laughs> Very one we different. Yeah. live and vastly different one than the one we heard about in Sunday school, if that was a part of your- So true. So right? true. Very different. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, to, to take this a step further, I've actually had a number of African-American friends who've said to me, the first time that I didn't think of myself as a hyphenated American was when I was abroad. And I suddenly mm. was like, whoa. And, and sometimes that was abroad in Africa and saying, okay, I'm in Ghana right now. And, uh, you know, for all, many of them, it was often a very transformative experience, but also like, but I identify far more with being American than I do being Ghanaian. But my more important point there is it took being uprooted from that. But we don't have to, you know, travel overseas anymore to do that. I mean, there are pockets of diversity in Canton, Ohio and Akron yep. and Cleveland. There are pockets of diversity within our own faith communities, our own neighborhoods, you know, those crazy people who have the Trump signs or the Biden signs in their front yards or whatever it is. Like you can learn a whole lot about what your identity is by being exposed to difference. So typically, um, I, I think the research would say the top three things that really shape identity development is international travel, uh, formal education and crisis, unfortunately, mm -hmm. you know, loss, whether it's a divorce yeah. or, um, you know, abandonment from a parent or loss of a significant other, uh, through death or something. So, um, those tend to kind of rock us to the core and I, I'm not a psychologist and don't pretend yeah. to be, but we've looked quite a bit of that research because of asking how do you truly get people to think outside themselves as the first step toward becoming more culturally intelligent. Talk to me about some of the other tools or practices that we can start doing to help us become more uh, culturally intelligent. Talk. Yeah. <laughs> to come back to the communication. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, that includes talk to your African-American colleague, your trans colleague, etc. But also talk to your family member who has crazy political ideas, you know, and, and I mean, if it's going to erode relationship and it's going to blow up and nobody's going to listen to each other, don't. But, you know, I really do have a belief in Martin Luther King's statement that, well, it's not by itself the only answer. It's it's one of the number one tools to get there. I think also um, a really powerful way for me has been films and novels mm -hmm. and experiencing different ways of viewing the world by reading a firsthand account of somebody who identifies as trans or, you know, the African-American experience or the Israelis experience related to the Israeli-Arab conflict or something like that. So I, I think that becomes a much more visceral way to encounter some of these things than reading the nonfiction kind of books that I write. Um, you know, thinking a lot about where you get your news sources, you know, look at, look at your Twitter feed if you're on Twitter and how diverse is it? And I don't just mean color of skin, but you know, do, do you have people from opposing viewpoints that are there? And it's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, pick the week and there's a polarizing topic, right? So, you know, last week it was forgiveness of student debt and this week it's, you know, the master related to the FBI uh, going into Mar-a-Lago and what will it be next week? Probably something related to the queen or something. You yeah. know? So yep. Should Biden be going to the funeral or who knows what it will be? But it really helps me to look at people on some of the extreme ends and somewhere in between. Um, as I look through Twitter and like, wow, really, is this the same event that's being described? So 
those are a couple things that come to mind. Oh, one more I, I have yeah. to mention. You would expect a writer to say this, but you know, I am a huge fan of journaling. It's it's oh, not yeah. for everyone, but um, it's the way I make sense out of what's going on. You mentioned earlier art. I mean, for those who do visual arts, what I absolutely don't. I, you know, I I don't find that to be a useful way of reflecting, but. I have a daughter who's a great artist that, you know, ask her to write in a journal and she'd be like, put a gun to my head, but give her, you know, a sketch pad to draw something. And it's a very beautiful way for her to make meaning. So I, I'm less about saying you must meditate 10 minutes a day or you must journal. Yeah. Find what it is you need to do to step back and kind of get into that self-reflective mode. What's a like a cultural artifact, whether it be like a book or a film or something like that? from someone of a different perspective than you that has made a good impact or a significant impact on you recently? So there's so many I yeah. can say, but the one that came to mind might surprise you because it's not cultural artifact in terms of learning about the crisis in Sudan, though I've, I've read books like that. Um, so I've, I've had a friendship for a number of years with Betsy DeVos, former Secretary of Education with the Donald Trump administration. Uh, we've served on, on boards together. And uh, I mentioned her in the book and I asked, I, I didn't want to ask her permission, but I thought it was only fair as a friend. And we hadn't stayed in contact when she was working on behalf of Trump. You know, yeah. she had lots of security around her, et cetera. But I just thought it was important to at least say, I didn't want you to be surprised by this. I reference it. And uh, she, she wrote right back and said, um, yes, um, you know, of course, I, I, I would love to see what you've, <laughs> what you've written. And uh, I actually have a book coming out as well. Um, why don't you and Linda, my wife, come over and, and have dinner with Dick and me and let's, let's talk about our books together. And so we did, and then we agreed to reach each, read each other's books. And that's my very long answer to your question. <laughs> I, so, you know, I, I don't want to tip my hand too much to where I fall politically because I do yeah. consider myself an independent, but there are many aspects of the former administration that were very troubling to me. And, uh, I expected uh, to be very troubled by the majority of what she had to say in the book. And mm -hmm. there are certainly some places that gave me pause, but it definitely gave me uh, some different perspective on things like why she did what she did with Title IX and what her view is on critical race theory and some of those, you know, how, how she viewed her role in the Parkland shootings that was, okay, I need to think about it. And we haven't yet had a conversation to discuss our books. I just finished her book last week, but I guess my, my point on that less about like uh, name dropping, which could be an offensive name drop or a, a favorable, yeah. depending on where you fall. It's more about purposely seek out something that is not going to confirm what you already think and see, is there a way I could think differently about that? Hey, I, I read one of the books early on after uh, Trump left office by, you know, it wasn't a piece that was overly flattering. I'm, I'm missing which piece it was right now, but there was a, an aspect describing his inner world and some of the dilemmas he lived with that at least gave me some empathy toward him that I admit I didn't feel during much of his administration, maybe don't still feel predominantly today. So I just, I find value in saying, let's look for those artifacts that it's easy for me to go have an Indian meal or read a biography written in India, but talk to me about reading something from my political polar opposites. Um, it feels a bit more unnerving to me. Mm. Yeah. And that even just made me think of like, it's through reading those books of people that we disagree with or biographies or stories that we go, oh, 
we discover those shared problems that you're talking about. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, because it's easy to read them and look for more ammunition. Like mm -hmm. this is what they have all wrong instead of like, do have I genuinely understood their perspective? And I would say that's a, as it relates to Secretary DeVos's view on education, I still have some key value differences. But I mean, she made the comment um, to Linda and me when we were reconnecting after a few years of not having connected while she was um, working on behalf of the administration. And she said, I, I wish people could have attacked my ideas rather than attacked me as a person. Mm -hmm. Like, why can't we have good debates about the ideas? And I mean, I, I think there's a larger climate where that was happening. So that was part of what I diplomatically tried to say back. But I think that's what we're after. Like, go for it. Like, challenge. This is an absolutely trouble. You might even want to say that the idea is potentially evil. But back to your use of that term, do, do I have to then say the person is yeah. all out evil themselves? And, mm. tease, tease that out a little bit more. What do you think it looks like to attack the idea instead of the person? So a, a strategy we talk a lot about in developing cultural intelligence that I, I referenced a few minutes ago is perspective taking. Mm -hmm. And perspective taking is slightly different than empathy. Empathy is... I really try and understand how Caleb feels and, you know, I try and get into your world and we all know it's pretty hard to empathize if I haven't truly walked in your shoes. So uh, perspective taking is I'm not going to necessarily feel what you felt, but do I, have I genuinely understood what your perspective is? And so I think where we can maybe depersonalize the ideas from the individual is um, this, this study that I mentioned in the book that a Adam Galinsky did, one of the foremost experts on perspective taking, where he asked, he tasked his students at Columbia to uh, look at the picture of an elderly gentleman who was sitting on a street corner in New York by a newsstand. He had three groups of students. The first group, he said, write what you see, you know, elderly man sitting here on the street, just write what you see. Second group, he says, write what you see, but I want you to avoid any stereotypical terms. Don't say he's lonely or he's demented or, you know, he's in his final days. Just, you know, kind of make up like what might his day be like. The third group, he said, I want you, and of course they didn't know what the other one's assignments have been, but third group, I want you to do first person perspective taking. I want you to pretend you're the man and describe your day. How do you view the world? And what he found was the first group, just as expected, used pretty negative terms to describe the dithering man who was in his last hours, etc. Second group, it was just pretty clinical. You know, he is sitting there and maybe he's going to go like have a cup of coffee. Third group wrote the most positive description. Um, you know, much more let the world is still his oyster. Look at the wisdom that he has from all of his life. So it might be that depersonalizing it is, can I genuinely see this idea without attaching to it you're a corporate whoremonger or you're, you know, somebody who's a clueless, ignorant, anti-vaxxer kind of thing. And like, why is it that I don't want to get vaccinated? What is a valid perspective that I might have? I might still disagree with the perspective, but I would go as far as to say, and I don't mean to say this flippantly because I, I work with a lot of people in the military, but I, I would say even a terrorist's perspective makes sense to them, if you even a terrorist behavior makes sense, if you genuinely understand the perspective, I'm not going to agree with it at all. No. I'm going to see it as problematic, but at least I go, oh, okay, there there was actually a plausible way that you arrived at that, and then 
how do we address the perspective rather than kind of going after something more, you know, immediately personal on it? Yeah. I got two other things I want to ask you about, but before that, I always just love asking, is there anything that we had? I know we've covered a lot and there's a lot that we could talk about in the book. Is there anything just top of mind that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure that we cover? You've referenced it, but I just want to underscore it. You've referenced that um, finding shared problems um, mm-hmm. is a core part of moving us forward. And I guess um, I don't necessarily need to, to talk about it anymore. I just want to underscore that one of the key ways that I see cultural intelligence helping us, not silver bullet, but helping us overcome polarization is how do we find with our polarized opposites something that we both care about and then actually use the differences as a way to come up with a better solution rather than just being stalled at you think this, I think that. And so mm-hmm. quick example of that, I, I'm not an economist. I don't pretend to know what we should do about college uh, debt in that. And I think there are very plausible arguments for why last week's $10,000 forgiveness is a useful, compassionate thing. And I think there are many and maybe more plausible arguments to say, and what is that really going to do? And is that the best way to go at it? But the common problem is higher education has become freaking inaccessible to the average person in today's world. We need both of those aspects of saying like somehow we have to get around that but instead we just get stalled in the oh we're making the deficit bigger we're doing a handout etc and um so yeah long answer to your question but oh. i would just say that getting zooming to a shared yeah. problem and then actually use not like no we can't talk about it no then actually use your differences to see if we can come up with some kind of third way solution mm. okay Uh, one of the things I want to ask you about is I would love to hear from you. What are some of the aspects of diversity that do not get considered when trying to be more diverse? Like for example, like it's probably pretty easy to think through, okay, people who have um, a different skin color than I have, or if I'm conservative, okay, I need to talk with liberals or different nationalities. What are the aspects that do not get considered very often whenever it it concerns trying to be a truly diverse organization or company or church or whatever. Yeah. A couple come to mind. The first one is getting more attention, but still is not noticed too much. And that's, you know, neurodiversity where people are Mm -hmm. on the spectrum and how does that influence whether or not people feel included and treated equitably. Um, And I think you could lump with that a lot of disabilities, like it's kind of just kind of added on at the end. Oh yeah, we also need to figure out how we do that. Um, I think size, um, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's a, a lot of bias uh, oriented at people's physical appearance and how they look and things that get said about people that would never be acceptable if it was said related to someone's gender or skin color. Um, Age, uh, you know, on both ends of the spectrum. I mean, I I admittedly have laughed at the okay boomer stuff in that, Um, but there's there's an underpinning to it where I sometimes watch advertisements and stuff that are done about the blue haired folks and that like, whoa, imagine if this was done with another group. So um, yeah, I, I think we're moving more and more toward a world that says it's less about ticking off all the different forms of diversity because we're never going to be able to name them all and understand that you may never have any idea of someone's you know, invisible world. Uh, I've had people say to me quietly at a, a, a public setting like, 
people don't know that I, I'm a grieving parent and that's mm. not a world I ever wanted to be part of. I'm not, thankfully, but yeah. an individual saying that. And how does that change the kinds of jokes that might get said about kids or talked about school time? So this, and I'm not a fan of being the diversity police that says like, oh, now you have to like be so politically correct, but it is, I love the question because it's being mindful that it's much more than just the rainbow of colors that we mm. think about. Well. Those are very real ones and we need to have explicit conversation about race and, and gender and sexual orientation, yeah. all that. But to your point, there are many others. Yeah. Is there anything that's helped you? Like, I love what you said, those invisible worlds that people live in. What's helped you like better learn or discover those? <laughs> After I told you that communication is is not enough, I'm going to keep coming back yeah. to it. I mean, I don't really substitute for it. Yeah engaging a relationship with people, conversation, getting to know who they are. Yeah, I, I had a, an individual at Coke that uh, we worked with a number of years ago. And the first time he brought me in to work with some of their executives, you know, I've, I've done a lot of that where you blow in the night before and you go in and you're one of several people to hear in all day long. They put you in, you speak for your 30 minutes and thank you very much, you know, you know, send us your receipts or whatever and out the door you go. And he made it an attempt before I arrived. What time are you getting in? And usually I'm just trying to assure them, like, I'll be in plenty of time. I'll text you. He's like, no, I'm hoping we can grab a drink because I want to get to know you as a person. Yeah. I'm like, what? You know, it, it shouldn't have been revolutionary to me. But in the corporate world, I just found it to be really remarkable. Like, oh, he, I'm not just this widget that he's plugging in at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. He wants to know me as a human being. And, you know, we've retained friendship. He's no longer with Coke, um, but I know some things about his world and his background that I never would have known if we had just interacted professionally, emails back and forth and that. So, yeah, I'm going to come back to communication. No, relationship. That's great. It's very important. Uh, and the last thing I want to ask you about, and I know that we've we've talked about this in one way or another throughout the entire conversation, um, but just solve, uh, solving complex problems. We mentioned the national uh, student debt, which is, can be a very complex problem. There's lots of facets to it. I think of um, this past summer with abortion being another uh, topic, very complex problems. What are some skills um, and, if, and some of it might just be repeat, but what are some skills that you've learned or that you've seen others use that help us better solve these complex problems to where there isn't necessarily like a, a right or a wrong or it's multifaceted and all of that? Yeah. So I know I'm probably going to alienate some of your audience as soon as I say this, but I think we need to get better at letting experts inform the conversation. Mm -hmm. And when I say I may potentially alienate some people, I, I posted something about that recently on social media and immediately somebody quipped back of, yeah, the experts haven't done real well for us over the last two years. And uh, hey, I've lived in the world of academia. I am not saying that as long as you have a PhD or have done research on this, but I mean, you mentioned reproductive rights. I mean, I'm I'm never going to be one who jumps up and down over the idea of an abortion, no matter what, you know, yeah. I think it's a complex ethical issue, but I also know that while I, I do want to weigh into the conversation yeah. as a person of faith, as a dad, as a potential grandparent someday, yeah. et cetera. But I also know I've got friends who have studied this deeply from an ethical standpoint, medically and you know, even even if we say, okay, let's let's make the circle those of us who share the Judeo-Christian ethic, 
there are thoughtful, smart people who are on different sides of how that should be legislated yeah. and when it becomes a life, et cetera. So I, I guess when I, when I keep pulling for diversity of perspectives, I don't just mean lived experience or color of skin or any other form of identity. It's also, and let's have a diversity of viewpoint. And that may mean two scientists who absolutely disagree with it. I think, I wish we had had more of that in yeah. the COVID debate. Like there was some of it and then they were pitted against each other. Well, some say the masks work and some say that. And so I, I push forward whichever one proves my point and let them have it out and then see if we can come up with some. And, you know, last thing maybe I'd say to it is it better also in, include some people with their feet on the ground. And yeah. if you are, you know, a child whose parent was thinking about aborting you or a, a mother who had to wrestle with abortion, they better be informing the conversation too if we come back to that illustration. But um, let's let's use a diversity of perspectives to inform what's there, at least as one part. Because you're right. I mean, it's, it's a piece I, you asked earlier, one of my concerns about the book, and it's, it's another thing that I did wrestle with in writing it is you go back and forth sometimes as an author as like, is this so obvious that everyone's going to be like, uh, okay, thank you for that three point thing that I could have read in an article? Or am I making this so nuanced that nobody knows what to do with it? And I mean, that the examples that you just gave, these are far more complex than use these four steps to go through them. <laughs> but it doesn't mean there are no handles we can use to kind of navigate the, the conversation to say, but how do we actually use our good brains to um, actually walk through how we might come up with a, an innovative solution to them? Yeah, well, I love it. I think that's a that's a good place to wrap our conversation. I know that uh, people are going to want to pick up the book, Digital, Diverse, and Divided, and keep up with you, David. Where's the best place for people to go to do all those things? Uh, yeah, davidlivermore.com. You'll you'll find my, my social media handles and all that and, and info about the book. But thank you, Caleb. Just your own curiosity and cultural intelligence comes through, and we've never met before today. So this is not uh, placating you, but just the way you ask the questions and uh, your voraciousness as a, as your veracity as a learner um, really speaks volumes. So thanks so much for a rich conversation for me. Yeah, thank you. And just thanks for, thanks for doing the work and making it a very in interesting conversation as well. Really just am so grateful for the conversation. Thanks, Caleb. So coming out of that conversation with David, here's three things that I am thinking about from just our conversation that we had. The first thing is this, is where can we find the shared problem that we are all experiencing? Where can we find the common agreement? Where can we find the problem, the tension that all of us are experiencing? What is the thing that we can rally behind? And it could be something as simply as, we want to make a better country or we want our country to be um, better. It could be that we want to help our kids succeed. It could be that we want to help our school succeed, that we want our church to be a safe place for people to share anything. Or we want to eradicate poverty or we want to uh, eliminate racism or gender equality from the world or we want to eliminate sexism whatever the thing is what is the problem 
that we can rally around because we all probably experience it maybe in a little bit of a different way and how can we go about discovering okay where do we share a common agreement where do we see the problem in that and how can we rally around that and realize that just because somebody has a different solution than we do does not mean that they are evil does not mean that they are wrong because ultimately they are trying to accomplish the same problem that we are it may just be in a different way the other thing that he got me thinking about was what we talked about towards the end of who to listen to and in and how to solve complex problems and how important it is to listen to people who have experience in it and who are people people with experience people who are suffering maybe from the problem that is being caused or impact or influenced by the problem that is happening there and getting the people who are most affected by it in the room and asking them for their perspective asking them for their opinion on how they see the matter and also asking people with expertise, people who have maybe been trying to solve this problem, working through this tension for many years, or maybe they've solved it in one context and listening to them and trying to figure out, okay, how can we solve it in, in our context? And so listening to people in the area of complex problems. And I think the other thing, and this is something that I've been thinking about recently, is learning just this idea or this analogy as it pertains to complex problems is that often whenever we see a problem it looks like a very uh if you think of it like a light switch that we tend we could sometimes think of problems that there's right and there's wrong that there's on and there's off that there's the right way to do it and that there's the wrong way to do it and the right way is usually the way that we agree. You know, there's the conservative way to do it. There's the liberal way to do it. There's the, you know, and you get what I'm saying. However, complex problem, and there, and there, there may be some problems that are like that to where it's, it's very, see, this is wrong, this is right. On, off. However, most complex problems are not like that. They're more like a dimmer. Have you ever seen a dimmer before, like a light dimmer? it dims the lights and it could be very bright or it could turn the light all the way down or you could get somewhere in the middle and there's lighting that maybe covers the and and on some and but it's not just a dimmer there's many dimmers to where it maybe gets for one light switch is 40 percent another light switch is 70 percent another light switch is 15 percent another light switch is 30%. Another light switch is 80% and it's all different. And that's how it is with complex problems. They're much more like solving dimmers and us trying to identify what the dimmers are and figuring that out. So that's one of the things that I've been thinking about in terms of complex problems is that also with dimmers as well, there isn't always like a right and wrong thing. It's complex complicated and just going back to what david talked about if we can communicate with each other if we can understand okay this is why you have it set at 90 percent 
Oh, this is why you have it set at 15%. Oh, okay. That helps us understand the complexity that is happening. And so those are just some of the things that I'm thinking about. And if you enjoy these thoughts, please subscribe to the newsletter where I tell you about all the things that I'm thinking about right now. Some of the things that I'm learning from and some of the things that I am enjoying as well. And you can subscribe to that newsletter. You can find the, the link to it in the show notes in your podcast player. And that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to David Livermore for being on the podcast and just having really a, a great conversation. And I would encourage you to pick up the book as well. We covered so much stuff that isn't found in the book. And if you enjoyed this, you can pick up the book as well. And thanks to Sam Massey for providing the music for this podcast. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.